Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who answer your questions about how to properly finance opportunities and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as how to best engage investors and navigate the public and private markets. Let's get started. In this inaugural episode, I interview Brady Fletcher, the Managing Director of the TSX Venture. This is a very interesting discussion about how the venture should be viewed and used to grow your business. We discuss the power of public venture capital and compare it with other funding options. As well, we get into the mechanics of capital pool companies, or CPCs, and how it really takes a village to raise a venture company. The interview is an eye-opener to the process, as well as the potential when done right. Stay tuned, as I know there is a lot of value here for everyone. Nice to be with you, Brady. Yeah, good to catch up. So, I think you bring a really interesting experience to the table at TMX Group with, uh, I think, almost a decade in investment banking. Yep. How's that informing what you're doing now? Uh, If you go... All the way back to school, I was a computer engineer, and then computer engineering decided I didn't want to be a computer engineer anymore. I had more of an affinity to the business classes, uh, and so I got hired by Jamie Brown and the crew at Tanaccord Genuity on the investment banking side uh, during the days of the mining heyday when we were doing 680 plus deals a year within one firm, right? Um, and it was, you know, it was such an exciting time to be in the markets because you saw the pace at which capital was deployed. You saw how quickly these companies were using that money to demonstrate that they either had a resource or they didn't, or that they were able to build technology. Uh, they were able to start selling product that they'd never had before. Uh, and it was all because we as Canaccord were there financing these companies and helping them grow. Um, and then, you know, the Canaccord model was that we helped these companies very early on in their life cycle through, you know, retail investment, meaning high net worth accredited investors in Canada that would provide an aggregate of a million or two million bucks to some junior company to let them test their business model out. And then if that company was successful in either drilling a new drill hole or or proving a technology worked, then Canaccord was there to provide 5 million and 10 million and all the subsequent rounds. And follow on. Yeah. And help grow these companies, right? And, you know, that was our that was our bread and butter business. And some of my favorite clients were like pure technologies, biotech, environmental um, companies that we did two and a half million dollars the first time. And then we got up as high as 30 or $40 million financings for them uh, with secondary transactions, helped them graduate to TSX and ultimately pure Technologies sold last year for $900 million. That's and so it's this platform. And that's what was really cool about being in the investment banking side with Canaccord Genuity was that, you were right in the middle of, of working with these entrepreneurs who were just trying to figure out how to finance the business and the growth of their business. And you were that partner that helped them get from you know, square zero to square uh, successful exit or turning into a senior listed successful public company. How has that changed now, though? I mean, that was the heyday of the resource plays, and, yeah. but it's not like that anymore. Um, absolutely. You know, you've seen sectoral rotation. You've had 10 years of a depressed commodities trade. We've seen things come and go even in as short as last year with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies coming and then leaving the scene pretty quickly. But, you know, what we have here with the venture hasn't really changed. I think what you're seeing now is that 
back in those early days, it was just the mining guys and just the energy guys that understood how to take a company public early, how to do a reverse takeover of a existing listed vehicle, how to raise a couple million dollars to drill that first drill program, and then su raise subsequent rounds when they demonstrated there was value that was there or they demonstrated they had a resource. Now you're starting to see uh, technology companies levering those same tools that have been used for decades by the resource sector. And it's tools like our capital pool company program here in Canada, as tools like the reverse takeover mechanism, pieces that have enabled companies to list very early on in their company life cycle, raising smaller amounts of capital, and then raising subsequent rounds at higher valuations, which reduces dilution for the entrepreneur, it allows the capital coming in to de-risk itself every time that they hit a milestone. Uh, it means that you're not having to take $100 million checks from private equity in one single slug. Who sink their hooks in and... Sink their hooks in and handcuff you to whatever yeah. they want to do. With this public venture capital model, you know, it, it used to be that it was just the resource guys that leaned on it. But now we've seen it be used by the battery metals group. We saw cannabis use it to define an entire sector over the last two years. I mean, it was only it was only fall of November. It was only fall of 2014 that Canopy did the first RTO. Uh, the number of companies that have graduated off of venture up to the TSX, and and many of which are now in the S and P TSX index as some of the largest companies in Canada. And it's all that public venture capital model that's facilitated the growth of of these different sectors. How should we view the venture? I would view venture as a capital formation platform that is more akin to an angel list than a true public market. And the license for a company that is trying to access the pool of capital that we provide access to, being global equity capital markets and all $100 trillion of it that can trade on Canadian markets, the license to be able to access that is going through our listings process and doing background checks and being subject to continuous disclosure obligations. But the type of company that we're working with is much more akin to an angel list than the billion dollar NASDAQ IPO. Um, they're the growth stage companies that are looking to raise five to $10 million. Our average financing size last year was about four and a half million dollars Canadian. Average market caps between 25 and $30 million Canadian. And now that scales from being worth under half a million dollars to being north of $3 billion. And you know we get companies yeah. along the entire spectrum, right? But the companies who are with us are, are very focused on financing to hit that next milestone and then from that next milestone raise money at a, at a higher valuation and be able to reduce dilution by financing at that higher valuation and continue to build the business. This is a market designed for you to hit milestones. Totally. To access capital, hit a milestone, access capital. It, it really is public venture capital. And when I joined Canaccord, when I joined Canaccord, early on, it was, we were the public venture capital or PVC group. That's how we were known. Right. And, you know, when you think about, when you think about what venture is, it's less about it being a fully regulated public stock market, which we are. I mean, the ASC and the BCSC in Canada have oversight of us. Uh, we do run on the same technology as the TSX. Um, it's less about us being a fully regulated public stock exchange and more about us being a capital formation platform for growth stage companies. And when I say that, it's about it's about us being able to help these early stage companies raise money, use their share currency to make acquisitions and scale, uh, be able to use their their publicly quoted currency to attract and retain top talent. Um, you know, if you're if you're a technology company that's building today, and you give a new engineer some options 
that are options in a public company, they're worth something from day one. Yeah. There's no, you don't have the same rotation that we see in Silicon Valley where engineers jump from one company to the next, hoping that at some point one of those options will get to a liquidity event. All the options in a public company are worth something. Right. Um, which allows you to attract top talent. In viewing it as, as, a, as a venture vehicle versus just an exchange for smaller companies. Yeah. By that, there's going to be a higher failure rate for some of those opportunities. Do we understand as a collective that there's a higher failure rate there? Or should we understand? There's a bunch of pieces to unpack with this one. One, absolutely, it's a venture market. And so there are failures and there are successes. And anybody that's investing into equities are looking for returns that are better than your government T-bill. And as a function of that, then that comes with higher risk than a government T-bill. Um, or just keeping money in a savings account or whatever else. And when you start focusing on earlier stage, higher risk opportunities, then there's higher risk that the company could go to zero, but there's also higher chance for reward or outsized returns. And so, you know, I think sometimes people lose sight of that, that this is a venture market and failure is okay. One of the pieces that, you know, I think is really important to keep in mind is that at least when a company is publicly quoted with us and it's listed on the exchange, if they find out that there isn't gold on the property that they thought there was originally, or the technology just isn't feasible, or it's not commercial, or their biotech company fails FDA trials, then the management of that company can tighten their belt, retrench, and find some new project to bend into it, giving those retail investors another kick at the can. Um, when you see that happen in, in private company space uh, or a crowdfunded company, we could all go and put $5,000 into a little private company. That company finds out that there's nothing of merit there and the company goes to zero. Our money is gone. But at least when it's publicly quoted and it's traded on the venture or another junior exchange, then those investors have a chance at, at participating in whatever happens next to the business. It gives management teams a better chance to pivot and turn and try, do, try new things, um, vend other projects in. Uh, and, you know, Hamish Shabazi with CIO Networks was a great example of that. Listed with us for 15 years, pivoted at least five times over those 15 years before he eventually developed a technology that allowed him to build the, the customer base and scale into a $300 million. And also, yeah, and ultimately a sale to PayPal. Huge sale, right? Yeah. Um, I was going to ask for an example, but I mean, yeah. that's a prime example of sticking with it, doing it right, and working through well and i mean just look at the cannabis space in canada right it's been a dynamic regulatory environment for the last four years and so by being publicly listed these companies were able to raise money they were able to try new things they were able to adapt to what health canada did they were able to see what was working what wasn't working um, what were cash costs you know what did they have to do for quality control all these different pieces that you had to work through as you define an entirely new sector uh, were supported by the public markets what companies shouldn't bother listing? What companies should just stay away from the markets? That comes back to your, your differentiation between venture and other public markets. When you, if you think about venture as just a public market for small companies, then you're totally missing the boat with this thing. Okay. Right? If venture, if venture is a capital formation platform, it's meant to help companies grow. We're meant to help them raise money. We're meant to help them finance. We're meant to help them grow through acquisition. We're meant to help grow them into becoming big success stories. 
Uh, and when you look at our, our track record of the 6,000 roughly companies that have been with us since the year 2000 versus um, the companies, the tech companies that have been financed by private equity, it's about 1% out of both categories that have become unicorn status, which is actually really interesting to think about. You know, the, our portfolio view of the companies listed with us versus the companies that are financed in private equity, it's about the same that turn into billion dollar companies. And actually a little bit better on the downside because what we've also seen is that two thirds of the companies listed with us raised three or more rounds of follow on capital. Um, and that number is dramatically lower in, in private equity because you know when something doesn't work out, people pull the plug and they reallocate capital to the things that are working. Uh, whereas in venture, you know, people allow management teams to pivot and shareholders can pull their money out and they can rotate through the mechanism of the stock exchange, but we're still here to help those companies grow. When, back to your question about you know, what companies shouldn't necessarily be looking at listing, that's where I think if you're, if you're a mom-and-pop restaurant with one location and you're happy with the living that you're making and there's a little bit of money that comes off of it, then you know, I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense as a public company. When you're thinking that you have growth aspirations and a defined use of proceeds and something that you can do with money that actually really builds a business and you've got aspirations to grow into something that's much larger than you are today, um, that's where the public markets can and public venture capital can be really supportive and exciting. What, what I'm hearing there is that obviously a mom pop uh, restaurant kind of business is not a public company, but if there was a revenue generating, just steady eddy rental business, as mm -hmm. an example, commercial rental business, maybe doing 15, 20 million in revenue, but they're not looking to to double, triple, quadruple those revenues or that, that growth. Yeah. Is that a candidate or is that something that you just look and say, wrong market? It depends on management behind it. Okay. Um, you know, we've seen, you look at the REIT space, you look at you know, some of the cemetery companies like Park Lawn, um, you look at the storage vault guys, right? Companies that are, you know, they're not overly sexy in terms of what they have, but they're cash flow generating defensible assets and they're so they're getting up and they're getting listed and, and still a good candidate and a good company to be on the venture to get to be on the venture use that share currency to finance their next acquisition and but their aspirations are to continue growing and so they're thinking about okay well we have we have one asset here and then we understand how these assets work so we're a best-in-class operator and we're going to acquire this one and that one and we're going to continue scaling and growing right well Technologies is another one today. Uh, and you look at what they're acquiring with the hospital beds, with the hospital beds and the number of um, acquisitions that they're making in order to scale the business. And they're kind of, they're in that model of saying, you know, we understand how this business works. We have the backend technology to run these businesses more efficiently than sole proprietors do. And so we're going to continue to acquire all of these other businesses that are out there and, and grow. And, and well is the follow-on business of a, a much of other. Yeah. Yeah. He's right back to the venture. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, that's a huge testament to using it properly. Well, we do see that consistently, right? People who have successfully leveraged the venture to finance, um, to be able to retain control of their company, not be subject to the preferred share term sheets that come from private equity, uh, and they've successfully grown into, into an exit, they're our biggest, they're our biggest proponents. Uh, and you know they'll get up and talk about the benefits of being venture listed all day. 
Um, similarly, entre serial entrepreneurs who have been forced through a sale or a liquidity event um, at perhaps not the right time for the business because a venture capitalist had a preferred share term sheet that they could force a liquidity event, they then become our biggest proponents as well because they like the idea that they can retain more control over the business. You know, when you, when you see the serial mining guys and the likes of Brian, who's now working with Justra and Gord Keep and that group, it's they're the guys that have consistently built a company in venture, scaled it up from exploration to development, and then sold it to a major. Um, you know, Wheat and Precious right. Metals was another great case study for us. Grew up on the venture, graduated to TSX, now dual listed down on Nisey. And the mining guys have a long track record of doing exactly that. Understanding that you know what they do with a business is is formulate the idea or the hypothesis behind a project, raise the first money to drill it out, prove there's an asset there, then raise the next round of capital to expand the asset and start to get take it to development. And at some point, one of the major producers turns around and says that asset works for us, and they pick it up. And then that management team that was taking that company from exploration through to production goes back to start it again. And they find another asset and they vend it in and they've got a successful track record. They of doing put it that. through the, the formula again. It's early days for us seeing the technology guys doing that though. Okay. And so when you see Hamid, when you see Hamid having done Tio come back and now do well technologies, it's exactly that. And we're starting to see people who have built successfully built technology companies with us recognize how they can build that playbook. Uh, to continually lever the venture to to grow their businesses, right? When we when we were discuss or having a discussion last time, we we touched on the question: Who's the customer of the TMX venture? Yeah. And I don't think we ended up on a on an answer. We probably just digressed and didn't come back to it. But who is that customer? It's it's an interesting one, right? And um, you, know, you think about it all the time: Is your customer capital, or is your customer the company? And we are a for-profit business and our listing fees are paid for by the companies and those companies are paying us to have access to to capital um you know i kind of take a technology mindset a little bit to this and i would say that capital is is the the circuitry and components in your iphone then the user experience is what's the friction of working with us through a listings review and background checks and all the things that we do as the exchange to maintain integrity of the market. And if we have if we have a great user experience and we provide you the best access to the deepest pools of capital, then we're, that's what we're selling to companies. But at the same point, in order for us to be able to have um, the best access to capital, we need to be able to show global pools of capital that the companies growing with us are best in breed and that there is that opportunity for outsized returns by growing, by coming and looking at the companies who are listed with us. Bringing foreign capital into the markets. And, you know, we, we do that actively, right? If roughly 40% of our daily trading activity comes from outside of Canada. 25% of the member firms that we have who are IROC registered are, are, are headquartered outside of Canada. Um, they're all groups that, that come here to trade and they come here because they want to have access to the junior mining space or they want to have access to cannabis or they like the idea of being able to participate in some of the, the growth stage technology companies that we have. And all of these capital pool companies are out there looking for interesting acquisition opportunities to bring new companies public. And you know what, what that means is that that entrepreneur that finds a CPC to do a deal, whether they're based in California or they're based in Toronto, 
when they find that CBC, they take over running the public company. So when you when you look at that number of you know over two hundred companies that listed with us in in the year of twenty eighteen, and um, the net increase that came with that, we also started to see capital pool companies coming out of Israel. And so we've got groups like A Labs now that have founded two CPCs. Israeli-based CPCs that are looking for Israeli technology companies and bringing them to this market. And the whole thing is that, you know, they have international pools of capital that support them. Um, they have an Israeli-based founder team. They have Israeli-based technologies. And it's totally international. They're just levering the technology of a public venture capital marketplace to be able to rotate shareholders and finance and grow businesses. I mean, since you've taken this role at the TMX, how, how would you say that your leadership or your vision of where it's going is different than the past? It's an interesting question. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I consider us relatively close to the past leadership and myself. I mean, I, some of my early exposure to venture and when I was, when I joined Canaccord was working with him, going down to the U.S. to educate U.S. companies about listing in Canada and I was one of the bankers that he'd put on a panel to talk about the benefits of listing in Canada. Oh, this is your predecessor. Yeah. Okay. And so John and I did tours together through the U S and we were out trying to drum up business. And I was the banker who would help bank the company. And he was the exchange that helped facilitate all the meetings and put things together. I think the, the difference is that when going out to hire for this role, I think there was a perspective that they were going to find a lawyer who was tenured and had some gray hair and you know John was a little bit older than I am. And so they were looking for somebody that kind of came from that cloth, you know, 15 years experience as a lawyer, knew the policy book inside and out, um, came from a very regulatory perspective. And when they started following around to say, you know, who should run the venture and they had a headhunter doing this, what I was told was that my name just kept coming up because I had been somebody who had not only been with Canaccord putting these deals together and working RTOs through the system and trying to convince junior growth stage companies to come up and raise capital with us and then participate in their growth on the venture. Um, but also that from there, I went to work for a venture capital fund. And then from the venture capital fund, I actually went to work for, uh, I did my own technology startup for two years, which was an incredible learning experience, but more so, um, I relate to the entrepreneur who is trying to figure out how do I make payroll for my team? You know, you're, you're financed on a month to month basis and you're trying to figure out, you know, I have people that are counting on me for their rent checks to put food in their kids' mouths. How do I make sure that I'm, that I'm providing them the greatest chance of success and making sure that, you know, I'm not taking, I'm not taking on an undue risk for them. And so that was a, you know, a big learning experience as you build a team and you have people counting on you for that. Right. Uh, it's a little, a lot of pressure too. And so when you're thinking about, you know, how do you make sure that you've got access to capital and how do you make sure you've got efficient ways to continue to build that support network? Uh, I do believe the public markets are the greatest way to do that. Yeah. There's definitely a conviction there. Public markets are the original form of crowdfunding, right? It's a, it used to be that, a, that a mining company or technology company would go meet a broker at one of the independent dealers and they'd say, here's my business plan. Here's what I think I want to do. I'd like to raise a couple million bucks. And if that broker liked it, then it would go to the corporate finance group to do due diligence on it and make sure that you know everybody was 
there weren't any criminals involved, that there was the business plan made sense, some financials made sense, do the legal background checks and due diligence requirements. Uh, and then that broker would manage the relationship with the company and he would put his network of clients into that company in smaller amounts. And so you had a, you had a gatekeeper functionality there that somebody whose day-to-day job it was, was to evaluate and assess these companies to meet management and be on, be able to understand what was a good opportunity what versus what was maybe subpar. Uh, and then there was the regulatory function of all the dealers to actually do due diligence on the management teams and the companies and the businesses there before any of the retail audience was actually investing into these companies. And I think there's, you know, there's something about that that, you know, maybe it was a little bit old school and very hand-to-hand that you had to meet the guy and whatever, yep. but there was a level of due diligence that was done on all these speculative investments before retail investors like my mother who watches BNN could invest into an early stage company. When you look at crowdfunding today, anybody can make a PowerPoint presentation, post it up to a website, and then that website can go promote it on Facebook. You know, there's not, you don't have that same due diligence or gatekeeper functionality, which is what we provide in the public venture capital world. Um, and so I think there's there's value to that. There's value to that method, right? Somewhat on the same same vein. Yes, I agree. There's tons of value there, but we've seen a big change in in our markets. We're seeing a lot of the broker dealers get consolidated, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the big banks starting to control a lot of that capital and thinning that, or really reducing that pool of capital that's available for for early stage companies. That's something that I think has just continued to happen, especially from 10 years ago, it was, it was nothing like it is now. Mm-hmm. How true is that statement? Or what do we, what can, what's, is there more detail that can go into that, which we know about that? You know, there's a bunch of pieces to that. Um, arguably to do a venture deal as a banker, it probably, it probably takes more work than doing the $100 million deal for an established large cap issuer. And those large cap issuers are all institutionally relevant. There's research behind them. They're known household names. So when you need to raise $100 million for them, you just walk them around the street and and showcase the company. When you're trying to do a venture deal, it's you need to educate as to who the management is. What's the market opportunity? What are they trying to do? What's the roadmap look like? How much is this really going to cost for them to develop it? All of those pieces take a lot more work to educate a prospective investor about what that opportunity looks like. Um, and so that's where that the role of the banker is all that much more important. And, you know, as you've seen, as you've seen independent dealers consolidate and some of them focus on the larger deals and partly driven just by market dynamics over the past decade. Um, we've also seen the emergence of merchant bankers and investor relations groups and people who, who do become those capital markets partners and do provide that extra level of um, scrutiny becoming the partner of a public company. Um, And so I think, you know, it it is a reality that there are challenges as the banks have consolidated wealth management and they've, they've focused them on less risky alternatives and less risky products, managed products and their own managed products. But that being said, you know, the opportunity behind venture stories is as great as it's ever been uh, because we, we're seeing more sectors lever the tools that venture provides to list companies early and give retail investors access to these growth stage companies. And, you know, we're not talking about 
Apple forecast that they're going to miss their revenue by 10%. And so their stock slides 8% on trade fears between China and the US. We're talking about companies that are that are going up trying to develop a new pharmaceutical drug to cure cancer. And as they get closer to that trial results date, they're either going to have a dramatic step function decrease that it doesn't work, or it's going to increase because guess what? They just proved it does work. Those are the companies that we're working with. And you're actually seeing that, um, that by being listed on venture, we're able to provide retail investors and the average individual the opportunity to participate in some of these companies that are traditionally reserved for straight private equity. And, you know, that's, I think that's really exciting that it's giving people and democratizing the investment into venture stage investing, um, allowing broader retail to participate into some of these growth stories that if they're held privately, people don't get the opportunity to participate in Uber, for instance, right? I mean, how many people, how many people probably would have liked to participate in the growth of Uber from it going from a billion dollars to the rumored $120 billion valuation? It's been reserved for the, the world's ultra wealthy and the elite and the venture capital funds that manage their money. To the last question of a change in banks position in Canada and a change of, of broker dealers moving more up market. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you're seeing more and more people almost fill a void, mm -hmm. like IR firms and uh, smaller capital providers and different partners who can help public companies become real operating success stories. Yeah. It, that goes for our previous conversation. It takes a village to help build something great. And Fiori, Fiori Group has that track record, right, of successfully building mining companies and being able to bring in the right operators and the right relations and being able to develop that village and the team around it to say, you know, Hey, together, we're going to build this as a success story. Some of the other roles in the void that you referenced, um, can Accords rolled out this program called the Colts program. And the Colts program is something they've taken from their Australian arm, but it's can Accord opportunities long-term and the can Accord opportunities long-term model is for them to identify companies that are too early for them to provide traditional research for, uh, but they will provide visibility and some sort of coverage that highlights what the company's activities are. And I, I think that's exciting, right? Because it's bringing some of those independent dealers who did move upstream. It's getting them to look back a um, little bit down, a little bit further into the smaller end of the market and find those opportunities where they can provide some support and help and help cultivate that support to grow them into the next round of success stories. That's actually really cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Um, we're seeing them across Canada, right? I mean, you've got Barsky Capital, you've got Schmeichel and JJR. Uh, you've got all these different merchant banking groups who are you know, consistently putting together new vehicles. Um, Rob Monroe and the Chrysalis Group, and they just listed their 10th CPC uh, or their 10th capital pool company with us, County Capital. And that's a you know great example of how this market is designed to help entrepreneurs be able to get up, get listed. And Rob and his group have done it 10 times now. Eight of those CPCs have gone on to do their qualifying transaction or vended a business into it. And I think they've raised over $300 million in aggregate amongst those eight companies uh, just by getting up and getting listed with us. I'd like to take us into going down the path of understanding the, the mechanics of a CPC sure. as, if, as if I was an entrepreneur or the CEO of a company who's looking to go public. 
there's a ton of pieces to that puzzle. And then there's a ton of partners who can come into it who you need to do your due diligence on. You need to do a ton of work to make sure you're pulling together that right team, pulling together that village, which we go through, which we look for. The first thing that you need to do is think about you know, the stage of your business. If you're Shopify and you're saying, hey, we're thinking about going public, you have the resources around you to have the whole team already in place. You've got the accounting there. You've got the investor relations. You've got the marketing group. You've got all the banks providing coverage of you um, and providing support for your going public event. Um, you've also been around long enough. You're probably pretty close to 200 shareholders and don't need distribution requirements. Uh, and so there's not a ton of value to that idea of doing a reverse takeover. If you're the earlier stage entrepreneur where you're saying, you know, listen, I've developed this technology in my basement. It's myself and my six co-founders. And we've now scaled this thing to being, you know, five or 10 million bucks in revenue. And we think there's a hundred million dollar opportunity in front of us, but we need 20 million bucks to do it. Um, so we're looking at how do we take this thing public? You can come in and you can try to do the IPO, but when you're going down the path of saying, let's do an IPO, the questions are going to be, okay, well, you know, who are your investors? You know, who, who's in the company already and do you have distribution requirements or do you need to get distribution through the prospectus offering? And what I mean by distribution is that at the time of listing, there's a minimum number of shareholders that you have to have in order to be able to be a public liquid company. And so that's one of the, the boxes that a CPC helps tick is that you automatically meet distribution requirements if you're doing a deal with a public with an existing publicly traded vehicle. The other piece that you know I think is the more attractive part to a CPC is retaining control over the timing of the transaction. So if you're that early stage entrepreneur saying, you know, listen, we're doing five to ten million bucks in revenue and we need 20 to be able to double the size of this business or take us to whatever level. There's a lot of risk to going out to that financing that, you know, the markets may or may not believe you. Um, you could be a first time entrepreneur that has no track record in the public markets. And so you go out and, and if you're going down the prospectus route, you go and you spend a lot of money preparing a prospectus, you bullet it, you file it with the commissions, then you go out to try to see if there's support for your deal. And you might find out there's nothing there, in which case you've incurred all these legal costs, you've spent all the time. And now you're, now you're back at square one with no money, having spent all that time and money versus if you do the capital pool company program, where you do a deal, a reverse takeover with an existing shell vehicle, what happens is that you just have to agree to terms with the vehicle, file a press release, and then you can go out and test investor appetite and make sure that there is appetite to getting this deal done. When you did Earthcast, um, Earthcast was exactly that. It was, they actually went to TSX. Straight to TSX, but, but same, through a CPC or through a, a shell, effect. through a shell, right? Yep. Same mechanism, though. right? So, Earth, so the shell put out a press release saying we're going to do a deal with Earthcast and take this satellite company public, um, and you were able to go out and and make sure that the money was there before before you actually incurred all the legal costs on the back end, because the mechanism and the disclosure requirements are still the same. You still have to do a filing statement that takes you to prospectus level disclosure. You're just doing it after you know that the money's available. There's a lot of risk in trying to take a satellite imagery company public at an early stage pre-revenue on the basis of a bunch of contracts. Yep. Right? Um, and so you think about that. It's like, do you go and prepare the prospectus and go down the route of incurring all those legal fees if at the end of the day the capital markets say, sorry, it's not there? Um, it's better for you to be able to 
keep control of that process, which is where the capital pool company program works really well. Can we get more granular on the CPC process on actually like the mechanics of doing it? The CPC, the CPC or capital pool company program is something that's been a big success for us. Uh, over the 16 year history of the comp of the process, we've done some 2,600 plus uh, CPCs and over 80% of them have successfully completed their qualifying transactions. Some of those have gone on to be the likes of Canopy Growth Corp, Wheat and Precious Metals, um, Earthcast, you know, success stories across all sectors on our markets. The cool thing about this capital pool company program is that it allows a private company and the management of that private company to effectively take over the existing public vehicle by doing a share exchange. So that publicly traded vehicle, uh, the CPC, will do what we call a reverse takeover or qualifying transaction. And the capital pool company will issue newly issued treasury shares in exchange for some number of the private company's shares. Effectively, what results in this or how this how this ends up is that then the public company would own 100% of the private company shares and the private company's shareholders would then own some pro rata interest in that public vehicle. When that happens, management of the private company then takes over running the public company and all of the assets of the private company are then now owned by the public company. Sometimes the management of the CPC or the directors of the CPC will stay on and be supportive of the resulting issuer. Um, sometimes they just walk away. And so those are some of the things that you negotiate with the CPC team as to how involved you want them to be after you've completed the list. And that plays into the point of looking for or really choosing your horse. What, what, does, what does that CPC bring to the table? Is it just a shell? Yeah. Just a vehicle? Or is there a lot more there in terms of uh, experience, connections, caliber of, of directors and so on? And so you, I think when you're putting together that go public transaction, it's doing a deal with a CPC is your opportunity to recognize where you might have gaps on a management team or you might have a role that needs to be filled. And if you can bring on, if, if by doing a deal with the right CPC, you can bring on the right uh director or you can bring on the right IR guy or investor or someone who's a salesperson um, or any other strategic position that you really think, you know, that guy would be great to add to our team, then those can be really powerful CPCs to work with because it's your opportunity to give that person a little bit of equity in the business, to give them a vested interest in the resulting public company um, and continue to grow together. What else do we need to know about partners? bringing people in to support that? I would say that there's two there's the two key benefits to a capital pool company would be one is that control over process, um, being able to control the timing and when you're incurring fees, et cetera. The second would be, uh, would be the intangible side of what comes with the CPC. And there's a little bit of money in the, there's always a little bit of money in the bank account. So that money can help offset legal fees and transaction costs. There's the distribution requirement that's already been met. And then there's the caliber of people who are behind it. And if you look at uh, Rob Bakshi, who's a serial entrepreneur, had a couple of big successful exits, including Sound Witness. Uh, he's now put together a new CPC with Hamid Shabazi as well and a number of other known technology players. Uh, and they're, if a technology company is thinking about going public, 
that's your opportunity to bring a number of seasoned serial technology entrepreneurs who have built public success stories into your deal by doing a deal with their CPC. Effectively, what you're doing is reaching into a network the same way you would go and find VC money, venture capital, private venture capital. Absolutely. You're reaching in and you're looking for a board who's sitting on that CPC who's got the connections in. And in the case of, of technology, it sounds like that's a CPC, which is a, you know, that's a good horse to pick. Absolutely. Structure is such a big piece. Mm-hmm. What do you see? What works? What doesn't work? What should, what's an absolute red flag you should stay away from, aside yeah. from negotiating percentages? I mean, valuation is always relative, right? Um, and ultimately, the markets price companies where they deserve to be. The, the piece that you know, I think is probably up for debate. Um, when you look at some of the US companies and more so the Australian ones, they typically have hundreds of millions of shares outstanding at 10 cents a share or less. Uh, in Canada, we, pr- we very much prefer tighter share structures. And the tighter share structure means that you know, you're not as subject to 20% swings on one penny. Um, it means that you're actually looking at a, a more cohesive shareholder base that's more supportive of the deal. And so I, I'd say that's that kind of structure is king comment that, you know, as long as the share cap isn't totally blown up, uh, as long as there's a relatively um, well-maintained float, then yeah, that's, that's one of the big things that people look for. From the successes you've seen, what's that range? How big is that float usually? I mean, is if, you're, if you had a rule of thumb, keep it within this range. Yeah, that's that's totally dependent on stage of com- on stage of company, how much you're raising. Um, I've seen it, I've seen it very tightly held, and you know, keep it to the minimum number of distribution, and most of the distribution is just that single board lot, um, which is a very very tightly held stock and probably doesn't trade that much. Uh, the flip side is you've, you've seen the likes of T God, the marijuana company that their IR guy was able to put together, I think over 4,000 shareholders before they actually went public. Um, and you know, it's a huge number of shareholders and a lot of work that went into that, but it meant that they had kind of that vested interest. So I don't think there's a single rule of thumb. It's more about, you know, understand what your strategy is, understand what, where you want to spend time and how you want to engage a shareholder base. There, there's a couple points you made there, which were interesting is, you know, markets price companies where they where they deserve to be, and something when I when I interviewed Brian, he said he views the markets as so incredibly inefficient that if you're not marketing, yeah. you haven't really got hope and help. Yeah. And now that brings me to your example of TGOT, something like four thousand shareholders before they go. That's incredible. How can you do that effectively without getting offside? Because there's all sorts of ways you can go blast out a message. But how do you do that effectively without being offside with the exchange or the regulators? So we as venture have taken a very strict position on if you're compensating or in any way paying for um, the disclosure, then you're responsible for the factual accuracy as a company. So if you're paying a third-party newsletter writer, you're still responsible for what they're putting out to make sure that it's not overly promotional, that it's all factually accurate. It doesn't matter whether it comes out as a press release from you or from some third party. And, you know, 
doesn't matter whether one of your shareholders pays for it, that you paid the shareholder. Like if you, if it's paid for by on behalf of the company, then you're responsible for it. Absolutely. I think, you know, investor relations and shareholder engagement is a huge part of being a public company. And, you know, to Brian's point, you got to be out marketing and you need to be able to get out and tell the story. The flip side to that is you need to be telling a story that actually has, uh, that actually has some, something to tell. And so you need to be out there saying, you know, here's what we raised money to do. Here's how we've hit on our milestones. Here's what our plan looks like. Uh, and that should be all material that you can put into the public domain. Uh, so making sure that you're not, you're not giving anybody inside information. It's got to be all transparent and it's got to be available to the broader investing public and containing your public disclosure. When it comes to digital outreach, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we live in an incredible age where you can reach so far and in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. How's that viewed by the exchange? It's, it's an evolving landscape for absolutely. And it's, it's only been the last few years that people have really started to embrace social media uh, and digital strategies for either putting together new newsletters or independent research or engaging with investors and investment communities in a different way. All of that is, you know, in my mind, it's awesome and it's powerful. And it's things that we're doing to help bring visibility to this market around the world. Our, our Venture 50 Awards last year, we had over 800,000 views of the 37 videos that we filmed for the companies that won. So, you know, that's pretty, to me, that's really impressive because that's these venture stage companies who don't have the resources to have big IR teams and don't have the scale to be covered by every dealer around Canada um, are getting 800,000 views of their videos. And that's where I think the power of YouTube and social media and other distribution mechanisms comes in to be able to engage retail investors and be able to help tell the story and bring visibility to the companies growing here. The challenge that it does then represent is how do you, how do you enforce disclosure requirements and how do you monitor all of these different channels and different websites that can, you know, a GoDaddy website can pop up overnight. How do you monitor for factual accuracy and not being overly promotional or manipulative for stock trading? Uh, and that's kind of that's something that we spend a lot of time on. And we have a big compliance department here, and we work closely with IROC and the regulators and the CSA to be able to um, try to maintain market integrity. There's no doubt we need that market integrity, but when you use words like overly promotional, yeah, what defines that? You know, there's there's press releases where <laughs> you've seen somebody say something like gushing oil, right? And it's like, okay, well, I, I don't think gushing is a technically defined term in 51101, or <laughs> right? Like, there's um, there's there's stuff that you look at, and and it is just it's over the top. And when you read it, it just says. Um, People will say like, "Hey, we're the we're the best, and we're the number one in this." And you know, you kind of read it. I'm thinking through some of the examples without trying to name names or be overly, yeah. But you think through it, and it's you think through some of those statements, and they're statements that can't be backed up or substantiated with any factual accuracy. They're they're using terminology or descriptions that aren't supported in any technical disclosure, and that's the sort of thing that gets to I guess to the overly promotional side of things, right? Reaching out to a shareholder base, 
what do you see in, in Canada with the well with venture companies? What is that distribution of retail investors and, and what's the average size of holdings for retailers? Is there a way to quantify who venture investors are? It's a sliding scale. Uh, and you know, in the earlier days of any company that's listed with us, then it's probably very heavily weighted towards retail investors and people who have smaller interests in the business and you know, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar check from someone, it might be a big deal. As the company grows and you turn into a ten million dollar or a twenty million or a hundred million dollar company, then you become institutionally relevant, and the small cap institutions participate. Um, the different dealers start to provide research coverage, and you get better you get better distribution amongst their channels. So it is very much a sliding scale that goes from from being just the individual retail investor with a TD Waterhouse account all the way through being the Canada pension plan that participates in, in Canopy when they're listed and part of the, when they're listed on TSX and part of the S&P TSX index. You mentioned earlier that the, there's 25% of the 25% of your member dealers are headquartered at, headquartered outside, outside the U S or outside, outside Canada. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. How are companies engaging those? I mean, aside from the venture engaging them to bring more in, more foreign dollars uh, to look at our deals, how, how are companies are engaging them? Or how should they? You know, there it's a constant it's a constant evolution in a company to be able to to build your village, right? And going back to that example of how do you build the right village? Um, you know, we've got UBS and Credit Suisse and Bank of America and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and all these groups who do trade, uh, who do trade companies up here and do provide support. You need to be able to find the right banker and you need to be able to connect with them and you need to be able to say, okay, well, what are the criteria for me to be able to access your platform? And the difference between PI, which is one of our really active venture firms, uh, do a lot of work on the, the earlier stage and have done a lot of work in the cannabis and some new novel sectors. Uh, you've got PI that goes to Canaccord and then Canaccord that goes to RBC and then RBC that goes to Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan. Um, along that entire spectrum, there's different requirements to be able to access any of those different platforms. Uh, some will be smaller and some will require $100 million plus financings. Right. It's that gradual step function as you build the company, building up, building the relationships. Uh, interviewed a gentleman named Hanif and uh, he's a former investment banker and is now building a really interesting fintech company. Okay. And he looks and he's like, when you're, when you're closing your A, you should be talking to people about your B like already and keeping that step function in mind of building those relationships. Mind you, he's keeping, he's doing it the venture capital route, but it sounds no different. It's not. Um, you know, the number one role, the number one, the number one rule for any CEO is don't run out of money. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, whether you do that in private company land or through public venture capital, uh, you need to be setting up that next round of financing as soon as you're closing the last one. So absolutely, you know, you're closing your series A and you're talking about your next round and same thing in public markets. When you're, when you're closing that first round, you're educating people about what your plan is and what you're hoping to achieve. 
and people are watching as you work your way towards miles, certain milestones. And at some point as you worked way or you're working your way towards, or you achieve certain milestones, then the dealers will come back and say, Hey, we want to give you another round of capital and just keep working yourself up. But you just got to keep educating, keep talking your story, keep engaging with your shareholders and keep engaging with the capital markets. But it's an interesting example, right? Because I, I don't think that being public is that much more of a burden than being private. And when you hear entrepreneurs like Hanif talk about the fact that as soon as he closes his series A, he's got to start due diligence with somebody on his series B and educate them along that road. How's that any different than having to do IR as a public company? And if anything, I'd say it's actually worse because you start going down the path of doing your series B and you sign a term sheet with one, with one fund. And as you're developing your business and growing towards closing that round off, all of a sudden you miss a milestone or you miss something or something changes with the fund and they decide not to do the deal with you. You're out of options. Yeah. You're very locked in. At least in the public markets, you've been out there educating the masses about what you're doing with the business and you're growing the business. And if something changes, you still have the ability to rotate those shareholders and bring someone new into the business quickly. That brings me to the next question is, what do you see for the future of the TSX Venture? When you look at our breakdown today, very heavily weighted to resources still, and we're we're in the first inning of, of the innovation sector, really recognizing how this, this model works. So I think we're going to continue to see technology companies lever tools like the capital pool company, take advantage of that idea of financing to hit certain milestones um, and continue to grow, continue to grow that side of the business. And I think that's, what's really exciting about this place right now is that these paths and structures that have been developed over decades by the resources sector, are only just starting to get leveraged by the technology and the biotech and the cannabis space and the innovation sector. That's probably the biggest thing you'll see is, is the di- continued diversification and the, the breadth of investment opportunities that are growing with us here on venture. Then, you know, when you start thinking about um, what does that also mean globally, we've seen a slowdown in early stage venture capital financing privately as more of those funds have focused on the later stage opportunities, the Ubers of this world, meaning that you, I think internationally, we have a a dearth of companies that are in this kind of five to $10 million revenue run rate, don't quite have the same financing opportunities in front of them. And so they're starting to look at this market saying, Hey, what happens if I listed on the venture exchange? Am I able to raise money there? Our, Our CEO Lou's favorite comment is that, our address is local and our business is global. Our addressable market is global. And really, we're just, the fact that we trade on Eastern Standard Hours is just how we focus liquidity to a limited time frame to be able to try to make buyers and sellers actually meet. And we provide international companies all an ability to come and list on this market. So today we're you know, 80, 85% Canadian headquartered companies, but I'd anticipate that number growing dramatically. That's really interesting. With the explosion of cannabis and the cannabis space, when will the TMX group start to work with more U.S. companies or any U.S. company? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think we, you, yeah, we, we'd love to. Um, and we've obviously seen that it's constituted a majority of the business for the CSE. But when you start looking at the U.S. cannabis space, it's a, it's a difficult one because regardless of what 
tweets come from the current president or whether you think the States Act will pass this year or not, uh, or what public support looks like if um, on whatever poll, that those are all um, circumstantial and qualitative speculation. And when we're defining listings policy for this market, we can't define something based on public sentiment or our speculation and best bet as to what we think is going to happen. Uh, we have to root. We have to root our policy in facts, and then we have to be able to equally apply that across all industries. And if we were to start listing U.S. cannabis, that means that we're opening the doors to working with federally illegal companies uh, under U.S. and Canadian federal law, which has been something that we've elected not to do. Wow, I uh, I know a few guys who do who who did uh, have a really interesting run during the advent of online gaming mm -hmm. and it's the playbook that happened there with the u.s and what's happening in cannabis right now is very similar oh absolutely to wrap this up for anyone who's either in the public markets right now or looking to go to the public market uh using the tsx venture and public venture capital what's a final thought for them the final thoughts it comes full circle to that discussion we were having around how you view how you view the venture. Um, I I think the final thought would be to reinforce that you know this isn't meant to be a true public market where you trade with the vagaries of economic speculation. This is meant to be a capital formation platform where companies that are working towards milestones will finance and work towards achieving those milestones. And when they do, then there should be a step function valuation increase. And if you're an investor looking at the volatility that's out there today and you watch the Dow take a point and a half slide or um, you see anything that's going on with, with trade disputes and government shutdowns and all these macroeconomic trends, the venture is a little bit insulated from that because the companies listed with us are working towards you know, valuation increasing milestones that will increase in a step function. Uh, if you're a company and you're saying, you know, how do we deal with this current volatility and what does it look like? Then, you know, it's absolutely open to them to come here and start having that discussion around how do we make sure that we have uh, those options structured in? Because as a public company, you do have the ability to rotate your shareholder base. Sheldon Pollock and OV2 Securities, his favorite comment is that um, public venture capital is permanent capital whereas private venture capital is borrowed capital. And what he means by that is that a VC fund has an obligation to return their money to their investors within a defined time frame, And maybe they can get a year or two extension on that, but there's a defined, there's a defined obligation that the money has to go back to the LPs. And so that forces those VCs to force exits at potentially non-opportune times. Whereas when you finance in the public markets and you go public, uh, sorry, when you finance in the public markets, as soon as that money comes into the company treasury, it's now yours. It's yours to spend, it's yours to deploy, it's yours to use for, for growing the business. And if that investor decides that they need to be able to liquidate their position, they have the mechanism of the stock exchange to be able to rotate themselves out and bring new shareholders in. Brady, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. 
For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.